Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. I remember fishing and going, I can maybe make leather out of the skin of this fish. It was just this idea, this very abstract idea. I mean, maybe I was actually beginning to lose my mind. <laughs> and, and then she was like, no, this is cool. I actually have a friend who does that. And I'm like, no way. All right, well, let's get some recipes. Oh, suddenly there's a book that had only just been translated into English by this woman called Lotta Rame. And she had just recently released this book. And so we got satellite images of her recipes sent up. And so we started making fish leather and made bracelets. And in a number of weeks, I had money again to travel. And then just so happened to be able to go and study under Lotta, who's this incredible woman who's traveled the planet, dedicating her life to the preserving of these skills. Hey, it's Adam Murray here again. Thanks so much for listening in. This week, I got to go on a lovely drive out through the northeast of Melbourne to a place called Christmas Hills, where my guest for this week, Josh McLean, has been living over the last few years and doesn't live there anymore, I think, but does practice his craft of tanning out there at the moment. He's got a tent set up there where he has workshops regularly. Yeah, we sat by the fire that he uses for his work and we had an amazing chat about what he's up to, why he's doing it, the unusual way that he got there. Probably the longest conversations that I've had so far and I hope you get a lot of value out of it. I got a lot of value out of it. So yeah, without any further ado, thank you for listening to Josh McLean on the subtle disruption of ancient tools, ritual and craft. Josh, yeah, where, where are we? That's my, always my first question. What are we, where are we? What are we doing right now? Well, right now, Adam, we're sitting on a bush block on a ridge overlooking the Yarra Valley. And, yeah, it's a beautiful spring day. The sun's shining. It's a little bit of wind. And, yeah, it feels very secluded here. You wouldn't even know that suburbia is only, you know, just down the road. Yeah. So, yeah, it's quite a magical spot. So welcome and, yeah, and, yeah look forward to yeah, telling you a bit more about this journey. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be sitting here. This is a first in a lot of ways. First to be sitting, recording a conversation by a fire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people can hear it on the recording or not, but it's very nice to be sitting here. It's got... Like a like it's a little bit of a chill on it today, so the sitting near the fire is perfect to get a bit of warmth happening. Yeah, and I think the fire is like a good a good symbol of just yeah, sort of coming together and yeah, and just being able to commune and it's also a place of cooking and yeah, it's a huge. My whole practice is centered around the fire. Yeah, like and and that element. So 
Yeah, it's really nice to sit here. Yeah. With you. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. What what happens around this fire? Usually? Well, what happens around this fire usually is it's an incredibly powerful tool. I mean, one that we've been using for thousands of years. So, I guess for for you and also for for those who are listening, yeah, the fire really is a key element in a lot of ancient practices and for me it's with traditional tanning and working with waste animal skins and honoring the whole animal is is my ethos and preserving those skills and where fire comes into the practice is that's you know obviously how you you cook to eat but also how you prepare the tanning solutions collecting wild wattle bark so as we look around us here those darker coloured trees that you see spotted around are yeah. uh, black wattle yeah. and, and they have sort of a shorter life period. They're like a pre-pioneer species that helps bring a lot of nitrogen to other plant species. And, right. and then as they're dying, that's when they have the highest tannins in the bark, so usually around the 15 to 20-year mark, and that bark is hand-harvested and then dried, crushed, and then actually put into a big pot onto this fire and a brew is made and the old tanners, they used to actually know just by tasting the brew the kind of content and quality of the water that they could produce. Really? I'm not confessing that I could do that, but you know just from, I guess, the the astringency of the taste, just how potent the, the level of tannins is in the brew. So, And then after you've done your, your bark brews, then you've also got the hot coals. And the coals are really important too because that's where you can collect rotting timber from the under, understory and then that's how you can smoke your hides. So there's a few different... I sort of go into the the sort of three main tanning methods that have been practised, uh, yeah, for thousands... Like, since the dawning of humans, basically. And, you know, the practices are simple, but, you know, the work the workload is hard. Is it? Yeah. yeah. There's definitely a profound appreciation for where we've come from and you know, the power of basic elements of, you know, fire and, and earth. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking around seeing a few other things where we're sitting to describe it for people. So there's some, um, what I take, a sheep hides hanging up here. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Got three of those and, and some frames as well. So I think you described it as waste animals. Is that what you said or what? Yeah, is that the term you used? Or? Yeah, well, I, I've made a real effort to not even have the word waste in my vocabulary, but that's how we would deem a lot of these skins in our society is that they're a, a waste product of, you know, when you're harvesting meat, for instance, or roadkill or, you know, and an animal unfortunately passes away. And so it's sort of seen as you know, just disposing of, like it's, it's waste. But, you know, these skins that you're seeing here in my setup, they would have otherwise have just been discarded 
So the sheepskins actually come from a local organic, like a homestead, I couldn't even use the word farm, where the animals are actually hand-raised and they live, you know, sort of a free and, and, and good life before they're actually, I guess, dispatched and then the meat's harvested and then as a way of honouring the animal, preserving the sheepskin and then that can be either made into just a simple rug or, or the wool can be, uh, the skin can be used, you know, in, in making like a lining for a jacket. Mm. You know, basically how we've clothed, clothed ourselves for, for thousands of years. And while I know that that can, you know, be quite confronting for a lot of people, well, I, can, I can tell you a, a funny story. Before I even got into working with animal skins, I, I was actually vegan, and and yeah, right. and and uh, my partner at the time, you know, she'd never eaten meat her whole life, and and I was very much on that that path as well. I thought no animal products, and I kind of really threw the whole idea of utilizing anything to do with animals, sort of wrong and unnecessary, and causing more. I guess, problems for the earth. And then I guess that's probably a good uh, segue into, well, how did that change? Yeah. Like, you know, how do you go from being vegan to to now working? Like, I've, I've never been less vegan in my entire life. Like, you know, so involved with animals that, yeah, it's completely revolutionised the way that I approach... Uh, I guess animal products and and that. So, so there are some specifics around that though that I feel align with what my intention was for veganism to live a life that respected our interconnectedness with nature mm. and that you know honouring those natural laws of of harmonics and the fact that there is sort of a, a, a balancing act and we've kind of certainly tilted that with you know certain practices that we've ventured into you know some of those being you know quite like fossil fuels is a pretty pretty big one and and when I went to Germany this was a few years ago and as I was sort of telling you before and I was sort of saving this (laughs) story for for the fire I actually completed my master's in food system literacy so in public health nutrition, but my papers focused on how the food system influences environmental and human health. Mm. And, and, and that's a really juicy topic. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, yeah. And you see a lot of documentaries coming out now <clears> around <throat> how what we put on our plate really does have a huge impact on the world around us. And... Yeah. And I thought, you know, I, I felt like I had had access to some of the best information on the planet. I'd even travelled to Sweden to study part of their public health master's course. And I returned home to Australia and I concluded that we needed to grow all our own food. I told my mum and she hugged me and said, bless my little hippie son. <laughs> <laughs> what did she mean by that? I think... No, she meant well, but I think, 
you know, like I, you know, I'd returned home. I had a big beard, and you know, what was her? What's her ethos? I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, her her ethos is is I guess like most most people, you know, living living right and meeting our societal obligations and and doing our best. And her ethos is, I mean, it's changed a lot now. You know, sometimes to our relationship, de- like a detriment to our relationship, but it's definitely evolved. But, yeah, I mean, her ethos is, you know, it's quite conventional in the sense of owning a house in suburbia and, you know, working hard at a job because, mm. you know, money makes the world go round and, mm. you know, if you don't get a real job, then you're going to really struggle. And yeah. so that's the kind of ethos that I grew up with. Yeah, And then... Through a lot of travel, I actually came to realize that that it was a whole bunch of BS. But what I mean by BS, Adam, is belief systems. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and they're and they're dangerous. Well, they can be dangerous, but they can also be very liberating. So, so a lot of the ethos that I saw was that we live in a in a mentality of scarcity that there's never enough of anything. There's not enough love, there's not enough money to go around, there's not enough jobs. Mm. And the more I researched on on the food system and even pre-agricultural civilizations and really breaking it down, you actually start to learn that the true natural laws that govern us, you know, one of them being abundance. So if you look at a lot of the ancient cultures, you'll see that the way that they live is that they use what, you know, they're definitely at, at the mercy of their natural environment, but they live really with their environment. So when I started seeing that and then the kind of scarcity and also with our fossil fuel dependency is kind of really setting us on a tra- trajectory for a lot of suffering and dependency outside of ourselves so in essence of what i'm trying to say is that the way that we live disempowers us Mm. and and so and especially through food and i'll I'll come back to the whole animal skins and textiles but particularly with what we're putting on our plate is a way of voting each time we go to eat we're essentially voting for the kind of life that we want to live Mm. and so Michael Pollan a really interesting author around food related issues he he said it perfectly you know you're not just what you eat but how you eat and and of course we've got access to a lot of this knowledge but one thing that we're kind of really struggling with at the moment that I feel in our society is bridging our extreme access to some of the most deep knowledge and then being able to put it into practice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of embedded practices there and cultural norms and lifestyle that that is up against that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and then, and then especially, you know, running an ethical business that is looking to address the needs of our society but also create change you know, when we are so embedded in, that, in, in, in our cultural ways and, and belief systems. So, so, yeah, I guess 
then traveling back to Germany, you know, what, what made me go to, to Germany? Well, they had a, a so foreign... So this was after you'd worked out that growing your own food, you come yeah. to that conclusion and you travel back to Germany? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I came back, you know, a lot of people now are getting into permaculture and, I mean, it's been around since the 70s and or late 70s and, you know, natural building and 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 I... You know, and I was seeing in, in the nutrition department at my own uni that they were just really struggling to enact change, especially when big corporate entities have such a hold and, and, and sway on our political systems that it's often hard to create that change. And often those people who are working in the system to change it end up burnt out and super unmotivated because they feel powerless so again it's that topic of 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 power and 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 our our dependency on the systems uh, that we've created so i did the natural building thing i came back and i got into earthships which is no one's heard of an earthship before it's basically using recycled tires and then ramming them with earth yeah and then sinking these buildings into the into the ground because then you have a constant below soil level temperature of ten to thirteen degrees. So, so you're living below ground? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well you're sort of subset into the ground and then and then on the front of your house you have a greenhouse that you grow all your own food mm. and the water in your house is recycled a number of times and that grows your food. Yeah. So I really like that idea. So in Adelaide, we had the first Australian-approved earthship with uh, Martin Freening. And oh, there's a funny story there. Like uh, the, this council guy came out to see him and, and he goes, oh, Martin, I'm here to see you about your spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he just laughed and agreed with the guy. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, like a lot of... I mean, and having a sense of humour, I think, is really helpful, especially <laughs> yeah, when we're facing, you know, some of these big transitions and, and really wanting to push the boundaries of our human existence, you know, and, and enact these projects, you know. They're going easy on ourselves too. I think often, you know, we can, we can be quite, I guess, condemning that our actions aren't good enough or aren't heard, but I think yeah. that... You know, whatever you're able to do and just acting from your place of truth is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so with the Earthships, because I figured, well, if we're going to educate people on, you know, because I started developing uh, an education program on food system literacy so that people could find out where their food came from and... Mm. You know, that it takes 22 litres of water to grow a lettuce and 14,000 litres for 300 grams of beef, you know. Just obviously they have different nutrient values. I don't, I'm not saying that, but just to give some perspective on the power of an individual's choice. I think too often we feel like just a tiny speck. Yeah. That our choices have no significance. And actually... Each of us has so much more power than we can even imagine. And I, I think that power is something that we're beginning to really realise and you, you see people 
having those breakthroughs where they apply themselves to a project and they just almost physically appear as a different person, you know, because they're really reclaiming their power, which then leads to the second topic, which is freedom. That's really what's going on here, is a reclaiming of our power and rights as a, as a human being, but also our freedom. So, you know, and I, I'm not out there ranting and raving at the front of Parliament House. I mean, I've been there and held up a placard and, you know, and that has its place. For me personally, I felt even more disempowered <laughs> yelling at a building. <laughs> but sometimes that works. And I, I definitely think that there are so many different paths to, you know, yeah. to, to achieving that. So, yeah, so building a natural space and educating people on where their food came from. So I wanted to travel to, to a country that really was leading in the agricultural forefront and, you know, being the home of biodynamics with, based on Rudolf Steiner's work. And he's a, well, he's an Austrian guy, but still in that kind of Central Europe area and I'd heard a lot of amazing projects going on there and a friend of mine, her brother, helped organise Woof Germany. And so I got teed up with some pretty amazing contacts. And, yeah. and so there I was, jet-setting over the other side of the world to really get to the bottom of what are the practical solutions to speed up this uh, transition to living more abundantly and more responsibly. And I certainly didn't see animals as part of that equation at that point. Mm. When I got there, everything went wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything. Like, I, you know, I'd, I'd still was finishing off a few, a few papers and I was on this farm and had a bit of a falling out, you know, with my friend, you know, because they weren't able to, to travel and do the farm tour. So I, I essentially felt like I got stranded the moment that I got there. And I thought, wow, I've traveled all of this way, especially for someone who's really aware of the ecological footprint, mm. thinking of all those jet miles. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm here now, so we've got to do something. And, and so I was with this beekeeper and learning his practices and... Yeah, you know, already like one finger into the away from the the vegan lifestyle, you know, and suddenly working with bees, you know. And if you're really true about not animal products, then you know, bees are, you know, a technically a type of animal. And and so I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm open to that because he's doing the bees himself, and he's got a really good relationship with the bees. And you can sort of see how this mindset is shifting. And then. And then I got a visa and then I started applying for different research positions. There was a food security centre in Hohenheim, I think. And I went to German school. I did, I did what any good German student would do. I didn't drink a lot of beer, though. <laughs> That's maybe the one thing that I didn't do a lot of because I was on a mission. And I, yeah, I got all of my applications came back and I spent days writing these applications, got a nice haircut, shaved, everything that a mother would love yeah. in a son. Yeah. And every application came back saying, sorry, amazing, but too many applicants. And, and then I heard on the radio in German saying that Germany has the highest 
Oh, second highest immigration rate after the US at somewhere, I think it was around 150 to 200,000 people per year were immigrating wow. into Germany. Yeah. And so the size, their state or their whole country is the size of Victoria. Yeah. And they have like nearly 90 million people. <laughs> yeah. And so it dawned on me that I may have traveled all the way to find these, like, I'd done the permaculture thing, but I really just wanted to nut out on a global scale with the food system, see firsthand how this can work. And I thought I might have actually have just travelled all this way on money I didn't have for nothing. So it was a really dark time. And, and I was fortunate enough that my wolf host was able to help me process the visa like once I was there and I wanted to see a friend in Sweden and then he he told me as well he had to look for work and I'd already booked a flight to go and see him. So again, there was this theme of, of just being completely lost. Like, what am I doing? Has this been a complete waste of time? Have I lost my mind? I think I was telling you before we yeah. sat down, those moments where you think, have I... Am I having a breakdown here or am I having a breakthrough? It's hard to tell the difference. It is, yeah. And, and yeah, so what does any sane person do? Well, they basically equip themselves to go into the Arctic. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Don't they? Yeah, right? that's yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I was really into this um, comparative mythologist called Joseph Campbell. Yeah. You may have you yeah. heard of Joseph Campbell's have, work? Yeah. yeah. The hero with a thousand faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't read his stuff, but I've I've listened to a bit of his some of his old lectures, and yeah, no, I'm familiar with what he talks about. Yeah, yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah, yeah. For for the listeners at home, I really recommend listening or even getting on to Joseph Campbell. A really amazing man, and he basically explored all of the different religions and belief systems across the planet and saw that there was this sort of underlying story that we were really telling. And so his work really captivated me because it helped give me a tool to navigate through this void and darkness in my life, like where I sort of felt like our education systems were failing us because they were up against really large corporate powers that swayed all of the research to suit economic benefits, which often comes at the detriment of the people. And, and so, you know, left with felt like nothing, I just thought, well, I feel completely hopeless and, and void. I remember looking at this diagram and it's called the hero's, hero's journey, mm. or it could be the heroine's journey. And, and it basically talks about leaving the village and, and coming up what he calls the ordeal. So in our lives, we have these challenges, but sometimes in our lives, we have these, you know, a challenge that is the all challenge. Like yeah. it feels like you're just going to break, like yeah. you're not going to get through. And so in this little Bavarian village and on my way to Sweden, I thought, well, this this feels like this is either going to make me or break me. And 
I ended up getting on an overnight train with a friend all the way to the furthest corner of Sweden on the border of Norway and Finland in the middle of winter. So it was probably close, I don't know, minus 20, minus 30 when we got there. I'd never camped in below zero before. I read a, I read a couple of books on the type of equipment that I would need. Literally mean a couple of books. <laughs> yeah. I did not prepare yeah. very well. And I had my Australian winter sleeping bag, which was pretty much useless. <laughs> and I borrowed a tent from a friend, bought some snowshoes and a good down jacket and some other snow gear. And I thought, all right, I might spend a couple of weeks up there and just, you know, just have a bit of a breather from it all. You know, go and sit in, in the white and just meditate and maybe something will come to me or, you know, I'll, I'll feel good and I'll go back and I'll realise that I can do it. And what was meant to be two weeks and my friend went back, back to her city and... and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And, and then I, I kind of just realised, like I, I saw that there was this trail called the King's Road and it was Sweden's longest trail. And I was staying with this French scientist that was working on the permafrost, like measuring the permafrost in the Arctic. To, so we're, we're about 250 kilometres inside the Arctic. If we go any further, we end up going on to Svalbard and then heading towards the North Pole, just, yeah. just to give listeners an idea of how... <clears throat> deep we are here and and to start the journey just to give you an idea of the the magic of this and and it's what Campbell calls the call to adventure and crossing the threshold this French scientist that I was couch surfing goes to me there's a thousandth carriage on the train that transports the coal from Karuna all the way to Narvik which is this coastal town in Norway and I've seen it once, but I thought it was a myth. And maybe you'll see it when you're here. And I kind of laughed at him. I thought, you know, being a cheeky Frenchman that he was having me on. And on the final day where I decided that I would start this trail on my own, which was really not recommended, especially for an Australian who has no idea what they're doing, <laughs> yeah. I sat there sipping my coffee and it was a beautiful, the sun had just ridden, uh, risen, it was this golden glow across this little Arctic village. And then out of the corner of my eye, I, I see this golden carriage at the end just cruising along, and I'm not even kidding you. And I just stood there in awe. I thought, this, this is what Campbell's talking about. This is the threshold to adventure. I am so scared right now. <laughs> what have I committed to, you know? Like when you read and you're diving into your idea or, or that process, it can be really terrifying, especially when you're held accountable for it. Yeah. And you've asked for this thing in your life. <laughs> yeah. Like I want this change in my life and the universe listens and it will kick your butt. <laughs> and... In, a, in the right way if we allow it. So I guess without going into a, um, a really long uh, story here, um, you know, I've, I've actually written part of it on, on a website to, to, to show the kind of work that I'm doing now if anyone wants to, to read it later. But in essence, I, I went on this, on this Arctic adventure 
solo, what they would normally, I've found out now, you would call a vision quest. Mm. And so it's when you spend a lot of, I guess, solitude in, in nature, away from, you know, your screens and, and that, and you just listen. And, and so I listened, I listened to some more, then I started getting bored of listening to my own brain, and then it was just silence. And then in that silence, in just pure white wilderness with a few sparse trees and reindeer and moose, I came across this little hut and this woman was ice fishing and, you know, she said, oh, I can teach you to ice fish. And I was like, okay, that would be really great because I'm starving <laughs> and I would love something to eat yeah. that isn't rice or lentils. And eating a banana or a capsicum or a snow pea in the Arctic is pretty ridiculous. So, But there's an abundance of, of fish mm. and, and meat. So this is where you sort of see the vegan thing starting to dissolve. Yeah. And so the Sami, the reindeer herders, eat a lot of meat. And, and so I was eating smoked moose heart, reindeer tongue, everything, and, and using the sinew and... And there was this really profound connection with the, the animal, animal kingdom. And it really shifted my perspective. And, and that the way that we access animal products is more about the how than the actual just ruling out that connection with animals as being detrimental. And, and so... She taught me to ice fish and I ice fished eight hours a day, chopped wood, collect water and eventually I realised I would, I would have to go and get a job because I was running out of money. and Well, I had pretty much run out of money at that point. And she said, well, you can come back here and, and I'll let, I'll, you can help me out on, in the hut because she's a, what they call a Stugvorden, which is a hut guard. And so she is like the light in the wilderness that helps those that are lost mm. sort of thing. Really? And, and they have them all over Sweden, yeah. yeah. And so I met her <laughs> and she was like this, you know, she's in her 70s but quite fit, still cross-country skiing, climbing roofs and chipping ice away, amazing woman. She'd grown up her whole life in, in these environments and her father and intimate connection with the land and the reindeer people. And, and, and she was sharing those insights with me and all I could think about is I'm lost, why am I hiking this massive trail alone in the Arctic, I'm, I'm a moron, I'm going to be even more broke like, and I've got to go and face my reality. Anyway, a couple of months after and hundreds of kilometres later, I... I was asleep and I had this dream where I met myself as an old man and I pointed onto a map saying, I'm going to go and see an old friend. And that led me back to this lady because I pointed on the lake that she was had her hut. And so I went and stayed with her and I remember fishing and going, I can maybe make leather out of the skin of this fish. It was just this idea, this very abstract idea. I mean, maybe I was actually beginning to lose my mind. <laughs> and, and then she was like, no, this is cool. I actually have a friend who does that. And I'm like, no way. All right, well, let's get some recipes. 
oh, suddenly there's a book that had only just been translated into English by this woman called Lotta Rame, and she had just recently released this book. And so we got satellite images of her recipes sent up, and so we started making fish leather and made bracelets, and in a number of weeks I had money again to travel and then just so happened to be able to go and study under Lotta, who's this incredible woman who's travelled the planet, dedicating her life to the preserving of these skills. And I went and spent some time with her and what you see around you right now and, and from the workshops that I've been running here in Australia is all based on that knowledge. But her knowledge has come from so many different people. And so as we move into more of a global society with, you know, internet and, and our ability to travel, suddenly we, you know, it doesn't seem so far-fetched that these skills can begin to empower us to thrive instead of calling them survival skills, as saying to you before, thrival skills. Yeah. So that's a bit of a, I guess, a long-winded version to, you know, how do you go from vegan to working with, with animal skins, but all of the skins around us have, would otherwise have been discarded. And, yeah. then, and as you can see here, I'm, you know, I'm wearing a, a goat buckskin shirt, you know, a reindeer and salmon um, vest, a felted hat from natural wool and a, a fish skin hat band. And, you know, my intention isn't to just turn this into a business that, you know, makes money and pays my bills. It's to actually preserve this knowledge for our generation, our children's generation, and to continue that cycle that gives us, you know, that's not to say we have to move back to the Stone Age, but if we're really going to take our stepping away from fossil fuel dependency seriously, then exploring other avenues of the way that we make things, I think, really needs to needs to happen and it, and it already is you probably you know you've already been interviewing yeah. those people so yeah and and it's really doable and so the whole ethos of of this this business that you're you know and this creation that you're sitting in now and learning about is all about preserving those skills and empowering people so that they can remake the way that we make things and, and to reclaim their freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've got a few questions for you. <laughs> Should we put a little bit more wood on the fire while we're... Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. While I'm contemplating that, or maybe you can get them, because yeah. I might pull off my equipment here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm oh. still plugged in okay? Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Great. You do that. Yeah, I, I don't get to really... I, I, I usually refrain from telling that story because it can, it can get pretty epic. Like, yeah, like how did you, how <laughs> did you come to do this? When people ask me, I, I, you know, I used to do scouts or something. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was just a mad keen bushcraft person or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's just a much easier way of uh, explaining it. You know. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not too sure what to ask you 
first. Hmm. Maybe I can ask. Maybe I can ask you about. You know the work that you're doing now and the people that are coming through. Like, what are they? What are you noticing about them and what they're mm. what they're getting from the workshops? Yeah, it's really. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't really set an expectation as to the kind of people that would come through in the workshops, but it is there are some common themes that you see, and and I think one of the strong common themes is that people are feeling, I guess, the need to explore alternatives to what they're being exposed to wherever they're living. Yeah, and you know, I know some people who aren't, you know, living in the city, but you know, I mean, with with our screen-based lifestyles, it's, you know, I guess it's easy to get caught in the culture and to feel overwhelmed. So the common theme is people, yeah, really, in essence, exploring an alternative to, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use, you know, more positive language, but you know, the the slave kind of lifestyle. I mean, you can have millions of dollars, this beautiful property, but be in a lot of debt and and be in total state of anxiety and depression. Like I've I've seen that, I've heard that, and you know, I don't feel like I'm the first person to realise that money isn't the answer. Mm. You know? It's important, but you know, as that ethos of money makes the world go round well, actually, people do. People make the world go round. And, you know, are we, are we being herded in like cattle or are we, are we the shepherds? Yeah. 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 You know, do we cre- are you creating your reality or are you being created? You know, and I think people are sort of, when they come to this workshop, they're realising that there's a big world out there and that what we're given in our youth and that is merely just a piece of that 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 puzzle or or even better just a strand of that mm. that web mm. and and so it's an an exploration of what it is to be human and and I think there's that inkling towards uh you know there's something else going on here that I feel deep in my bones that I can't explain but I feel like going and doing a workshop that will help me uncover that. Mm. And particularly with tanning, it's an alchemical uh, process. So, you know, you're taking a raw element that would otherwise break down and then transmuting it into a stable element that it wasn't before. And, And that's a really... Uh, deep psychological process, and and also on your on on your spirit and soul, of going from dependency, which is breaking down into your environment, to being independent. So, so when people come here and they they learn how to make leather, and they go, "Wow, I can transform this otherwise would be waste into a versatile textile." There's something, like I I actually had a couple that were at a workshop earlier this year appear yesterday. They're like, 
we're in the area, can we come up? And I said, no worries, you know, come up here. And they're like, we just can't stop. It's so amazing. Like, it's changed our lives. And this, this one guy, Sammy, um, he's, an, he's a teacher and outdoor ed enthusiast. And he said, the kids, you just see this light that just goes on in all of the kids. Yeah. Like, it just, they take to it, you know, it's something that doesn't need a whole heap of explaining. You can just watch. Mm. And, yeah, he's just, you know, to have that kind of feedback and literally have them come back up here, you know, was really reaffirming of that, that this work is well, was super relevant in our more primal states of being, but in actual fact could be more important now than ever. Yeah. I was thinking about what you were saying about fire as a tool and such an ancient tool right Mm. at the start. And I guess mm, I've been listening to this guy called Jordan Peterson go through the biblical stories from a psychological point of view. Yeah doing a bit of a Joseph Campbell in a way and interpreting them as myths. And, you know, in the story of Adam and Eve, one of the things they do, first of all, is to clothe themselves as well. And it's, you know, you're wearing the the clothes there that you've made from animals. But, and you know, what you were saying about people who come to the workshop and they feel like they're tapping into something that they can't quite articulate but seems very important as well and something deeper and connecting and you know, some of these things go back to right back to the origin of our species I suppose and they're just so embedded in our biology probably oh yeah let alone our yeah and our you know layers upon that in terms of culture and, and practices and may I'm, I'm just wondering I guess if uh, yeah it's helping people reconnect with that part of them that does get cut off in many ways by the distance that we have between um, how, how our things do get produced at the moment and, and how we do interact with the natural world around us too. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah that's, a, that's a big one. Like, you know, I mean, it's not to, like, you know, when I first got in, into this way of being, you know, I kind of dis- disregarded the society. I said, you know, if you want to do the concrete jungle thing, then or, or zoo, as my friend says, concrete zoo, you know. But, but really, you know, if we are, so in, if we are interconnected and, and you believe in that state of being that everything that you do does affect everything around you, then there is also that connection with that which you know we don't want to be a part of so i i really feel like there is a balance there there's that honoring that deep ancestral knowledge that's embedded in our bones and so that's you know it's not like you have to just sell up everything and 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 disregard and move into the bush you know i i attempted that and you know it was really difficult you know, because we are still in a really big transition and still remembering a lot as well as learning a lot. And, and so I think these practices are really dependent on where each individual is in their lives, you know. So maybe going up for a weekend workshop is, is enough for someone to top up that part of themselves. And the work that they're doing, you know, 
like you know say if they're even working in politics but they feel that their path is bound to them like that they're what they're doing is creating change yeah then i think honoring like it's really about honoring truth like it's not you know because my truth will be different to your truth you know but of course we still have the same stories that bind us and and mm. and so different ways of of honoring that you know maybe it's a small fire in the backyard with your kids you know or and you know we don't all have to run around in animal skins and furs to save the world that's just like merely what you're learning and a really heartfelt example of a journey to you know really attempting that authentic life and if that if that's being a banker then you know then that's being a banker or 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 driving a bus you know i i think you know i've been very privileged that i've had that kind of um space and ability to travel like i feel really grateful like i realize that i'm so lucky that i can choose to live this way you know to what some people might see as quite primitive or difficult yeah and so that that is a great like I acknowledge that privilege and that you know and and it's funny like as you said you know in those biblical stories even Adam and Eve clothing themselves and you know a lot of ancient cultures they don't even have part of their mythology as having left the garden of eden that they're still in the garden yeah i mean in in some ancient cultures they have as part of their mythology they're still in the garden of eden and they haven't left so we really have this sense of disconnection even in our most base, basic myth which you know i guess people are listening at home that haven't explored mythology you know often mythology is just synonymous with you know ancient greek myths and mythology is something that happened in the past we're not in it now and in actual fact where we are you you just don't know that you're in a mythology when you're in a mythology and <laughs> and you know and when campbell you know I, i've got a few references in here to to campbell is just how profound his work has been on my life when he was asked i think it was in a interview with bill moyers you know what what does he see as this the next big symbol to the mythology of our people as we become interconnected on the planet tools like the internet what would that symbol look like mm. well he said when we had the image you know whether you believe it was a hoax or not we still had an image or if you're a flat earth believer there was still an image that was produced of the earth rising over the moon's horizon and from space you saw the earth as just one ecological i guess you could say spaceship in this in this sense and there were no borders mm. and and i think that like you know it, and i think it would takes a long time to process those symbols especially with our ingrained cultural practices like we were talking about and yeah. and so it's funny we kind of see you know we can't be disconnected nature isn't something out there like when you're when you're viewing earth from space you suddenly see that you know you can't get away from anything i mean unless you you've got your own little rocket ship or something you know like 
this is this is it. Like it's all, you know, everything that we create goes back back into it. Yeah. And and you know, and they're talking about getting rubbish escalators or like sending rubbish to space, but I've never heard something more ridiculous because you're sending resources that are in a continuous cycle on the planet away from the planet. Yeah. So so it is in, interesting to investigate the kind of stories because under language we have the myth and the metaphor and that 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 is under discourse and and cultural and myth and metaphor so if you're if you're listening right now like if you make a note of the different metaphors that you tell yourself during the day you can start to unpack the kind of story that you're weaving into your life and you know some of my old metaphors used to be oh the more the merrier type thing you know two birds with one stone all this kind of essence of more and i think there's definitely a threshold of too much like when you've got too much stuff in your life you're working too much nothing you do is good enough like you know because it's this constant needing of more mm. and and it's this void that'll never be filled yeah and and yeah so it's uh, so unpacking your own metaphors uh, yeah language is a is a powerful thing you know it's called spelling for a reason <laughs> yeah you know every time you speak you're casting a spell of of what you're bringing into the world mm. so so language and storytelling i think's also an important part and what i've also realized over years of tanning now is that when you look at the ancient cultures there there are people of song you know whether that's indigenous australians with the song lines native american indians with their water drums and and you know and they would have songs to talk about all of these different processes and it's an amazing way of remembering and also storytelling as well so and choosing the stories that we tell not only i guess helps us to remember but also helps those around us to remember as well yeah yeah one thing i like to think about and i guess i've noticed in my own life too is that sometimes it can seem like the change that i need to make or i feel like we collectively need to make seems so big but because of that interconnection every small step that i take has a network effect on my own life and then on the life mm. of people around me and i guess like what you were saying you know living that truth or being authentic to what i'm called to and making the next step in that direction i notice it just makes other things easier <laughs> around me mm. and i guess one of some of the ways i've noticed that even in really basic ways like making sure i get enough sleep and in making sure i get enough sleep i'm able to be more alert during the day and more present during the day and then being more present and alert during the day means that i'm more engaged with people as i talk with them and i'm able to think about things like well, what i'm eating and why i'm eating it and then that has other effects as well mm. so i think you know almost sometimes picking the simplest easiest thing to start with it seems the most obvious it might not be that big but it's kind of like just that next step in 
and that can uncover or unlock a lot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and yeah, I kind of, oh my God, I've got such a Campbell, Campbell fetish. Um, I, <laughs> like exactly the, exactly what you're saying and, 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 you know, and in working with, with animal skins and honoring the animal and moving from, you know, my standpoint on veganism to now, I don't even have a label anymore. I've moved away from labels of, of what it is to be doing because, you know, labels are sort of the base and basis of violence. Like, you know, I'm doing this, but you're doing that. Like I am a vegan or I'm a paleo and you're, you know, maybe, or maybe you, maybe you haven't, you know, been eating consciously or whatever, but that's really violent because then you feel like I'm questioning your life saying that you're, you're not good enough, like, because you're not doing what I'm doing. And so I'm definitely not saying at all in this, like, I'm just sort of reiterating, you just sort of triggered that, is that I think it's really important to say that that in honouring that truth and how it looks like, I was saying, you know, if, if you're a bus driver, if you're paleo, vegan, mm. whatever choices that you make, you know, it's, you know, my my truth may be different to yours and, and, and how you live. And and I think there's a lot of respect and understanding in that. And, and at times it can be difficult if you feel like somebody else else's way of life is in, encroaching on your way of life. Mm. But I think, like I was saying about yelling at a building, I think, I think reacting and, you know, trying to change another person, it's possible, but it's a hard task. Yeah. And so, and, and where I was sort of about to go again with Campbell is that you know, we can spend so much energy and time trying to change other people, political views and laws and rights, but at the end of the day, the only thing that we have control over is ourselves. And so, but here's the, the clincher on this one. So in saving yourself, you save the world. <laughs> yeah. Because imagine when you're at your optimal state of being, whatever that is, yeah. and imagine the kind of potential unlocked in that and how you can serve others through your own optimal state. Yeah. 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 So I think what would be good is to actually understand what tanning is. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's get off the philosophical bandwagon for a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think a campfire does that. Like yeah, sitting by a fire is like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, usually a cup of tea and, and yeah, it's time to contemplate, I think, the fire. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's probably for millennia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so traditional tanning, I guess quite simply, is the transforming of animal skins into textiles. And, you know, that's, that's the real basis of it. Unpacking it at a further level, traditional tanning in my eyes is conducted in ways that... I guess is honourable to the animal and the environment, 
and is symbiotic in its nature. So there's no concept of waste. Yeah. So everything that's produced can essentially make soil in some way. Yeah. So, you know, also metaphorically, like it can go back into its natural cycle. Mm. Yeah. And that's, yeah, like we we're just saying, you know, for millennia, like the fire, the ways of interacting with animals for, for millennia. And, and so the story of tanning, because, you know, we're on the topic of stories, campfire, beautiful bush setting. I uh, wish you were here, whoever's listening. <laughs> I had a, a guy, a native man from uh, Mexico, came up here because I was making some drum skins. Oh, yeah. So that's where all the deer hair you can see over there yeah. is from a lot of deer hides yeah. and making these medicine drum skins. And he said, oh, well, I've got to come up and bless these, these skins of yours. And, you know, I'd picked up the traditional tanning skills of preserving the skins and the three main methods, oil, fat and brain tanning. So it's all with fats. Then there's bark tanning which is what they call vegetable tanning, which is using tree bark and other plant-based materials that are high in tannins. And then you've just got raw hide, which is making a drum skin, for instance. You don't need to ply any liquors or anything. It's just straight raw skin. And, and so I guess that element of spirit and connection that could go a, a step deeper is sort of ritual around and sort of our, our society have kind of had more rituals to do with the church and so we're kind of sitting in what I would call a church at the moment right now mm. and and so we had him come down and, you know, <laughs> baptise or in a way perform a ritual and how the story goes is that there was a time when we weren't able to defend ourselves and animal, like large predators could pick us off really easy. And so we actually, and the borders between our ability to communicate with animals were quite different than they were today. And we were actually able to cross that boundary between animal and human and communicate with our environment and humans, with animals. And, and so we made a deal with the animals because they couldn't talk to the great spirit, that we would honour them if they were to give them, to give us their claws, their meat and their furs, to acknowledge their existence and their importance so that they could appear again. And, and there are lots of myth, uh, mythic stories. I mean, we see them as myths, but the people of those times, to that, it was just as real as computers are to us now. Yeah. Like, imagine taking a computer and going back 8,000 years <laughs> yeah, and then telling them that they live in a mythic society <laughs> and we're trying to explain that we have these screens that we can talk to people on the other side of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see the, the context uh, and perspective there. Yeah. And so, so Fernando, who was here, we performed this, this journey of honouring the spirit, which in traditional tanning is what it's all about because if you, if you don't honour the animal and suddenly you don't have access to the animal, then you're going to be without a lot of your tools, meat, 
and so so the basis of traditional tanning uh yeah like you were you're saying you know it's like pre-human dawning of of man or humankind and yeah so i think that's kind of the real covers the real basic aspects do you do you think any our listeners would want to know any more detail about tanning or maybe a, like a quick process like what's the process like you get so these sheep skins here yeah they're yeah. drying out right now i yeah. take it and what happens to them next well next they would have a oil so they've had all the flesh removed off them yeah you know i don't have a fridge out here so i have to move pretty swiftly often they're either salted or in this case on ice in a giant esky yeah and so all the flesh is removed. Then the what do you do with that flesh? Well, that flesh gets composted with the charcoal. Okay. So it gets mixed up, and then I I bury it on contour here, and that and then plant native grasses to help stop soil erosion. Yeah. And so actually generate life from the practice. So moving beyond sustainability to creating positive growth. Yeah. Yeah. And and so now you, either with a brain, mashed up brains, slightly boiled, would be smeared on that skin. On the inside. Yeah, yep, on the inside. And then that would be left to penetrate into the skin and then it would be strung up into one of the frames here. Yep. And then I use a large stick with a rounded, slightly pointed end. And then you, using your whole body weight, you lean into the skin, stretching the fibres. And then that creates an air pocket between the fibres. And it's still not stable. So the final process of these sheepskins to turn them into rugs is smoking. Because one of the main chemicals in smoke is tannic acid. And I think it acts the same as way as, as tannins do in plants. I mean... You know, maybe it's just a different accessible tannin, you know, that comes when the, when the timber's burnt. And that smoke binds into the, the lattice of the skin. Mm-hmm. So skin is a natural woven fabric of spiralling chains of proteins that all interspiral together. And then when you stretch it open and you apply those fats, oils and brains, you coat the fibres and then the smoke when we use rotting wood, preserves that network that, and that space that you just created. So if you wash the skin, you can stretch it out and it'll be soft again. Mm. So that's the way that you make buckskin, like uh, this shirt that you can see, yeah. and also how you preserve to make fur skins, which are handy for colder climates if you want a sheepskin rug by the fire or... You want to line like rabbit line mittens or something, yeah. And yeah. So that's that's what's happening with these sheepskins here. the The main process that I I'm really involved in, and and I I don't know if we've practiced this method on this continent before, but my my indigenous knowledge isn't isn't the most deep. Yeah. It's still sort of coming to me and, and, and spending more time in the bush and really listening. But bark tanning, 
seems to be quite an accessible way of tanning. And so for those listening at home that are, are interested in making your own leather, bark tanning is a nice way of getting into it. And, and to bark tan, like I was saying, with harvesting black wattle is the best bark. And you usually harvest it from a tree aged between 15 to 20 years, which is in the end of its life. Mm. And normally you would harvest the whole tree and then you would use the upper parts. You can make biochar and then the other parts you can cut up for firewood after you've knocked all the bark off of it. And then you break the bark up into a pot and back at our sacred fire, you fill the pot half with bark full with water and then you boil the pot for you know usually an hour is a rough guide and you do that three times and that gives you a three-step brewing process and you always the golden rule with bark tanning is you start with your weakest solution first because they have the smallest tannin particles because if you go into a really strong solution with large particles and often a lot of the glues that come out of the bark, it can block the outer surfaces of your skin, making it difficult and what they call dead tanned leather. So it'll have a white strip in the middle. And and so you gradually increase the strength. And how was that done in the bush when you didn't have steel pots? Well, you would dig a shallow in a creek bed if there, if there wasn't running water or a shallow next to a, a river or creek and naturally water would come up in that and you would lay the bark in that and put the skins in there and, uh, and, and just leave that for months and, you know, our tribal nature and also moving across this landscape, you know, depending on the seasons and access to food, we would then you know, come back to that place and then the skin would be tanned. And it's, yeah, right. and it's not so different from pit tanning in the UK to burying skins into ashes in, for the First Nations people of the Americas. It's amazing how similar each of the processes are, but it's so much about your experience and your relationship to each process because it, there's so many variables, there's no science to it. Hmm. So I can do the same processes over again and think, oh, I did the brews exactly how I've done them every time, and then suddenly think, well, the temperature kind of dropped over the last week. You know? And if you've done any home brewing or anything, you know, temperature is really crucial you know cuz if it's a high temperature the processes speed up a lot and if it's low temperature they can slow down and sometimes spoil both ways so so of course picking your timing and 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 really i just encourage the participants who come through the workshops to make as many mistakes as you can like just and that you know, and if that's not a life philosophy, you know, <laughs> I've got to be careful there. So I don't in and I, I in my workshops, I I don't actually go into a lot of the storytelling. It's more experiential, yeah, because it's already so rich in the practice. Mm. But because our listeners, I you know, as much as I'd love to reach through this microphone and pull our listeners here, I hope I've 
kind of done that in part with my intention of speaking with you today and you know is to share what that richness is in these practices that yeah. our everyday nine to five jobs or whatever work that you're doing to pay your rent or your mortgage or whatever you're you're working on yeah to really help to bring that fullness into your life and and yeah so that's where the storytelling comes but through the practice of traditional tanning you see that the story is being told and you're a part of that story yeah 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 probably when we were first talking on the phone actually you you talked about you know the trials and tribulations of running and creating an ethical business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're doing this tanning. I guess there might be a couple of elements to it. Maybe you sell what you make and you do the workshops as well. Are they, probably, are they the two main ways of you um, enacting that business? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, of course, you know, not wanting to use chemicals and to have everything handmade is a really long process so yeah exactly like I think can appreciate how how challenging that could be especially when a lot of these processes can take months if not days and then to also make it accessible for people so the main aspects of my business right now workshops taking a break at the moment from workshops because they're quite high energy to organize especially to give someone the experience of a uh, skin from start to finish mm. but I'm looking at, you know, lining up some of my own private workshops, but at the moment teaming up with other groups who are wanting to preserve these skills and going along as a guest or a, you know, a, a facilitator that's included in a, in a program. And, and so workshops and, of course, you know, I don't like using the word products, but, you know, that's what they are, a finished item... And usually, like, you know, I set up an Etsy shop, but most of what I do is actually sold privately and is done on a commission basis. Mm. People actually are contacting me to the point where now I'm, I'm actually quite behind on the amount of orders that I've got, which is fantastic. And I'm able to, yeah, afford afford this lifestyle and, and, and things are improving each week and, yeah, just developing the range of stuff that I can offer. And a lot of it's practical and, and simple in its design because the beauty is just in the fact that it's made from such an organic and special process with that kind of energy. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of my main thing, but my hope is to move more to a focus of educating and sharing these skills so mm. you know not being the professional that you get something made but rather someone that can pass the knowledge on to whoever's listening or wanting to listen and then they can go through that process themselves yeah yeah i'm gonna put a little bit more wood on yeah sure so you know for someone like myself who does live i guess on the outskirts of the the concrete zoom <laughs> and probably for you know quite a few of the listeners as well like is it is it possible to do this kind of work or make something 
to do my own tanning in that kind of environment? Or, you know, do I, how do I do it? How do I get, you know, how do I do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, it's funny you mention that. A friend of mine, I don't know if you recognise the name, maybe some listeners will if they're really into the bushcraft rewilding stuff, Claire Dunn. She's written a well-known book called My Year Without Matches and she's now running a lot of workshops that are around urban rewilding. So exactly what you're talking about, which is for a lot of people who don't have the luxury of, you know, being out in the bush and, and doing this as a lifestyle, how can they start to bring those elements to their home? I really... It, well, first of all, yes, you can do it, definitely. And and I really recommend, you know, for people who are just starting out or they feel like, you know, where do I even begin with this sort of stuff? You know, maybe you just want to start dipping your toes. I really recommend, you know, going to, you know, a weekend workshop here and there. Like, you know, start out with basic elements like fire making and... and you know, and all the elements of tanning come together with the bushcraft skills. And mm. and so, you know, to start tanning at home, I really recommend starting with fish skins. And not because I've done so many of them that, you know, it seems easy to me. They're so thin and small that if you get a bunch of them, I the workshop that I'm running at series at the end of October is fish skin tanning workshop and I collect the fish skins from sushi restaurants. Yeah. And also I, you know, also catch my own fish and tan my own fish skins, but that's more for my own my own collection because there's so many waste skins out there. You don't want to use your prized skins that you've caught and eaten. But sushi restaurants are a good place to start. Your local butcher roadkill although you know that's that's kind of a gray area i mean depending on what type of animals you're picking up you know because i mean no one's told me that it's illegal but you know it's it's something that you know you just want to be careful you know with that you're not you know more more so for your own hygiene and and you know i always recommend like those those sprayed crosses that you see on animals, have you seen? Yeah, that I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, have you, do you know what they. No, I don't. No? So, those sprayed crosses that you see is because they've done a pouch check and like a life check just to see if the animal's ah, okay. actually alive and, and if they might have a joey yeah. or, or something. And, and often, if there is a dead animal on the side of the road, I, I tend to, um, like, I just have a, a roadkill kit now where I just have a tub and gloves and, and stuff. It probably looks like a bit of a, a murderer's kit over a roadkill kit. But, yeah. like, just so that, you know, you're prepared to, you know, if an animal dies uh, on a friend's farm or something, um, skinning an animal, like if you're thinking of skinning your own animals, just be warned. It You want to set yourself at least a whole day because it's it can be quite an overwhelming experience if you haven't done it before and, you know, very confronting, you know, especially, well, you know, whether you eat meat or not, it, it, it is confronting. Yeah. And, but after a while it, it becomes, there's a lot of beauty in that, in that death. And, yeah, and then I've actually got some two-minute 
videos uh, that I've recorded to show the basic processes. And uh, if you go on my website, uh, thebushtannery.com.au, maybe, Adam, if you have a link or something. Yeah, I'll put the link in. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not trying to sell anything. It's just, you know, really the whole, like, you know, I'm sure you haven't, I haven't given that kind of, you know, buy my book or anything like that. I'm really wanting to empower other people to get into these skills. One, so I'm not this just this crazy lone man in the bush um, <laughs> that I have other people. No, there's actually a whole community across, across the world who are very much preserving these skills. And, and I think for those listening at home, you know, it, it is a really powerful experience and, you know, I've only given one perspective of that experience. Maybe your experience is very different to mine. Maybe it's not your cup of tea. That's totally okay. But for those that have come to do the workshop, you know, whether they've continued the practice or not, it's, I think it's really, yeah, has been an incredible uh, experience for them to, to take into their lives. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I got two more questions for you. All right, yeah, yeah, all right, hit me. They're the questions I always ask as I wrap up. Yeah. As we wrap up. The first one's about is this something that you that you're not involved with at the moment, so not to do with tannery or something, yeah, out of out of what you're working at the moment. You think about and you think, eh, maybe one day I'll get to tackling that and changing that thing or subtly disrupting that thing or I wish somebody would have a go at this, you know? Is there something you, that uh, comes to mind when I ask you that? Wow. No one's ever asked me that question before. Yeah, yeah something completely different that needs subtly disrupting that I would consider tackling. That's a really good question, Adam. I feel like I've spent a lot of my life doing that. Like, it feels like if it, if it could be disrupted then I've been doing that. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think, I was like, oh, you know, what about in natural building? Well, you know, I've been applying myself to that, yeah. uh, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, the food system. I was like, well, I de- dedicated a really good part of my life to that. And then I thought, well, I can't do anything textile-related because that's what my current project is. You know, I guess, I guess what's coming to me, what, you know, what came to me first, but I couldn't really put it into words... I think with a lot of the workshops that we do, I mean, there's sort of like you have on the one hand, you know, your spiritual internal work and on the other hand, you have like a a practical workshop, you know, and, and I guess, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm slowly integrating it, but disrupting these practical workshops to bring more, I guess, celebration and, and human connection. And, you know, because I, I think sometimes we get really focused on, on producing a thing. And, and of course, there are, are definitely, like, you know, through telling you the stories and also about, you know, through the process, you actually, you know get a lot of that information but I still feel that you know ritual is something that 
you know, even myself, you know, I'm exploring and, and have been lucky enough to have ritual come to me. But I still feel like there's this yearning for that. And it's kind of a gap now that we've moved away from, like, you know, Christianity and certain religions that we thought, mm, this isn't really serving me or maybe it's conducted in a way that doesn't bring you the kind of value that you want, but you don't really know what that is. And really, it's ritual. So I feel like if I wasn't doing this, I'd, you know, I mean, I want to integrate it, but of course that's a whole other field of, of bringing ritual and ceremony more into our everyday lives. You yeah. know, instead of having to go and sit in a church dressed in uncomfortable clothes and, you know, and not feeling like this is this is right maybe it is right for some people I'm not saying that um, saying that it's more from my perspective but I think for a lot of us who have moved away from those physical churches are still yearning for that that ritual mm. so I feel like that disrupting I don't know if you've maybe you've come across someone on your path that's really disrupting that and bringing more ritual back in and I and I'm talking about a new kind of ritual like you know not taking a ritual from another culture or like uh, you know disrupting in a way that I guess is honoring that new symbol that I was talking about earlier mm. this this globalized people and maybe it's the ritual of of just celebrating you know and 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 expressing how we feel like and and so I, f- I feel like there's a lot of masking and and holding back. Like I feel like we're kind of almost scared of our own power or or being too much, you know, to yeah. people. Yeah. And 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 so I'd lo- I'd love to disrupt that and 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 get people really to, well, including myself, you know, and and to really express that. And if that's like wearing you know, big furs and, and <laughs> the crazy eye tattoos and, you know, and running around in the bush or something because I just feel so wild and free, you know, that's, you know, of course, but I think what will the neighbours think? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how my, my heart sings, you know. It yeah. just, it goes, well, who cares? You know, <laughs> like, that's how you feel. Like... I mean, as long as you're not hurting anyone, that's how I normally finish that statement. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a, a long way to answer your question, but if I was to be working on a different disruption, it would be around enabling people to tap into that, I guess, that unfiltered expression of their true being. And and that's kind of scary because you don't really know what you're going to get. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it changes moment to moment. So, so yeah, that that's my answer to that. Was your first question? That's my first question. Wow. Yeah, cool. Oh, that was a big one. Yeah. The second one is a bit more personal, and it's yeah. about something small or something subtle that you've changed in your own life or that you do in your own life mm-hmm. that's had an important or significant impact, or continues to have a significant impact on yourself. Ah, oh, morning. Ritual, yeah. yeah, yeah. I morning ritual, morning ritual. I can't. Yeah, I cannot recommend it enough. And and if you're still listening, I recommend uh, checking out the Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Have okay. you no, heard of it? No, a friend of mine actually here at 
at this community. It was a 30-day challenge, and basically being a creative type, I'd always had this belief that, you know, I get my creative juice in the evenings, I'm a night owl, and I'm not a morning person. I'm just not a morning person. <laughs> Ask my family, I'm not a morning person. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll snooze and just get every, juice every last minute out of my morning before I have to get up. So, and often, you know, it's a rush out the door. You've already got five things that you've got to juggle. And, and anyway, this guy basically, you know, realised and he had, he had a big car crash and, and you know, he's really wanting to give back to people and look at how he could better himself as a human being. And all of the work that he looked at of some of the top people who are, I guess, enacting change and doing this personal life coaching type work mm. is that the first hour of each day is really the most important time mm. because you're setting the vibration for the rest of the day or the 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 metronome for the day yeah and oh, i thought no <laughs> this is terrible <laughs> i don't like this guy yeah. you know and it's kind of like corporate america style guy you know gelled hair and <laughs> i thought well you know, that's truth, you know, and that's what I mean about embodying truth is that accepting that it may look like somebody with gelled hair in a suit. <laughs> yes, know? yes. And, huh. and so I was listening to this, this guy talking, I was like, I cannot disagree with that, you know. And so he has this routine called the life savers and it's the savers that you need to remember. So S is for silence. So when you first wake up, your brain's still in a delta theta state, so that's when you're really able to meditate properly because your brain hasn't woken up so much that it takes over. Mm. Then A is for affirmations. So you start reprogramming your beliefs. So you go, I am good enough is a big one. You know, I am financially abundant instead of thinking, oh, I'm broke all the time, you know, and, and so that's S, A, and then V, you move on to visualisation, so visualising the kind of life that you want to lead, and then E is for exercise, and so, you know, I do a combination of yoga, qigong, and ancestral movement, which is a new practice I've been incorporating, which is instead of moving the body in quite linear planes, it's about waves and spirals with the body. So it's a bit of, it's just like Ido, Ido Portel? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like fighting monkey and, and sort of, yeah, yeah, like really, really learning to, to move your, your body in sort of more ancient ways. And, yeah. And then you've got R, which is reading. So reading or, you know, listening to this podcast for inspiration <laughs> and and then finally scribing s for scribing and you know cuz he couldn't use a w cuz that wouldn't work with his savers acronym <laughs> and so i write yesterday dot points and then affirmations so it's programming it physically and then the visualization i write dot points of what i visualized and then finally how today will be a miracle and that's between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. And then by the time you finished How Today Will Be a Miracle, like 
I imagine the feeling of like a horse exiting the gate at a race. Like it's like really like you just feel shot into life. Like、mm. you're just ready to roll. Whereas before it was like ah,、oh, you know, it's like at six thirty. I do want to get up early, but what am I going to do? You know, like I could sleep for another hour. I know getting up earlier would be good, but and of course, just snooze and that and that procrastination, you know, puts you behind what you need to do. So you're always like everything you need to do is just within reach and grasp, but it just misses you. You know,、yeah. and now and now I'm sixty, I think sixty seven days in,、mm. and it's basically become a habit now. Like I wake up before my alarm. And and the changes that have happened in my life, like I'm I'm not going to go into it, but you know if you do get the chance to check it out, do the 30 day challenge of waking up at five every morning and those savers methods. And he does have a video on YouTube where he explains the whole process. But that has, apart from Joseph Campbell, if you've been listening, has had the most profound impact on、yeah. my life. Yeah.、Wow. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a big fan of the morning ritual as well. Yeah, yeah great. I、awesome. don't. I don't tie all of those things in, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I think I might start to tweak it a bit because they sound good.、Mm. Yeah. Josh, it's been so good to sit here by the fire and chat, man. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for yeah for coming into the space and yeah, it's really amazing the work that you're doing, Adam. I, I you know, sort of you're you're weaving these projects together. Yeah, and, and strengthening these bonds, and and yeah, it's such a such an important project to to get out there and and to see those grassroots disruptors and and what they're up to, and yeah, I mean, the more you sort of network and you start to see that the future really is a lot brighter. Than、mm. the media paints. Yeah, that's for sure. That's true. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah. So yeah, thank thank you so much for coming to interview me, and yeah, I hope your listeners and have really enjoyed themselves, and I might even see them. Yeah. Out here、yep. in the bush. That would be good. Tearing、yeah. their own hides, or even you one day, maybe. That's、yeah. right. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors dot com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests in this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or through on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.